Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, November 25th, 2022. Hope everyone's Thanksgiving was good. Uh, it's been a bit slow, but we got enough stuff to go over here. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Poland rejects Germany's offer to deploy Patriot missiles. So the Polish government has rebuffed an offer from Germany to deploy Patriot air defense missiles to Poland by suggesting that they should be sent to Ukraine instead, which that would mean a significant escalation of NATO's involvement in the war because the, the plan here was for Germany to deploy these Patriot missiles, not to just give them to Poland. So that means they would German troops would be sent to operate them. So what Poland is suggesting here is that NATO troops uh, directly intervene in the war by, by deploying these missiles. So the, this idea was rejected by Germany's defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, and she said, quote, these are Patriot systems that are part of integrated NATO air defense planning. That's why it was possible to make this offer to Poland. Any proposal that deviates from that must now be discussed with NATO and with our allies, end quote. So um, Germany made this offer to deploy this, these uh, Patriot missiles, these U.S.-made air defenses, after a Ukrainian air defense missile landed in Poland, killing two people. And Poland initially suggested that it would accept Germany's offer. They they said they were happy about it. I covered this. Um, I thought it was something that was going to happen. Um, and besides just sending the missile, the missiles, it would have also involved German warplanes flying in Poland near the Ukrainian border. That would have been part of the deployment. But you know, this rejection from Poland it does highlight you know the divisions between Berlin and Warsaw. Uh, they they've been at odds lately. Poland has been a major supporter of Ukraine and has sent hundreds of their own tanks to Ukraine. Uh, that's just one example of the military aid they've given. Uh, Soviet-era tanks, the tanks that Ukraine has been trained to use before, they sent like 240 or something like that, a, ton, a lot. That's a lot. And they've been very critical of Olaf Scholz's government. He's the German chancellor, you know, accusing them of being too hesitant to arm Ukraine. Poland's also not been happy with the fact that Macron, the French president, and, and Schultz have had conversations with Putin since the war started. They're, they're against the idea of talking with Russia. Um, and the Polish government has is facing domestic criticism for this suggestion that the patriots should be sent to Ukraine. Uh, a Polish daily newspaper said that the decision was shocking since it would, quote, involve NATO in a direct clash with Russia, something the alliance has been trying to avoid from the beginning, end quote. So, and then there are other examples of um, the criticism that they've gotten for this suggestion and kind of blowing off Germany like that after they made that offer. All right, the next one here, Hungary is says that it's going to approve Sweden and Finland's NATO memberships early next year. So this came from Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister. He said that Hungary supports Sweden and Finland joining NATO and that the parliament will formally ratify their memberships early next year. So far, the legislatures of 28 out of 30 NATO members have signed off on Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And Hungary and Turkey are the only ones that have been holding out. Uh, so... Hungary's been kind of delaying it for a while. Orban's government submitted the legislation to Hungary's parliament 
back in July, but it was never brought to a vote. Um, and now they're set to hold their first session of 2023 in February. So I guess that's when Orban is saying it's going to be approved and ratified. Now, he's been at odds with the rest of the EU over the sanctions on Russia and the joint aid to Ukraine. The EU has also blocked funding to the Hungarian government after he won re-election. Uh, you know, they're, they're not too fond of him, but he is very popular in Hungary. And it's over allegations of corruption while they blocked the, the funds. Um, and Orban's chief of staff has previously said that that issue needs to be worked out before the parliament can discuss Sweden and Finland's NATO bids. So uh, maybe this is related to that. Maybe they're trying to use it as leverage. This is why they've, they've delayed it. But then you have Turkey. And I think things with Turkey are a lot more complicated now with this big military operation that they've launched in northern Syria and Iraq. But primarily, it seems like mostly in northern Syria, there's more strikes reported on Thursday. And they've said that they will not approve this deal if Sweden and Finland don't live up to a agreement that they signed back in June. Turkey initially blocked them from trying to apply to join NATO, and then they they met and signed a deal, and they lifted their objection. They allowed them to apply, and then the process now is that it's been sent to every NATO member to be approved by their legislature whatever their process is for ratifying a treaty. So in the U.S., the Senate had to approve it. And now Turkey's saying that their parliament, you know, if this, if they're not happy, they're not going to approve it. And one of their main gripes, really the main issue, is that they say Sweden and Finland, mostly Sweden because there's more Kurds there, they say that those governments support the PKK, which is the Kurdish group. They consider a terrorist organization, and so does the U.S. and the EU. And then their affiliates in northern Syria, the U.S. supports. And so it's just a whole mess. And um, now that they're fighting, you know, there's all this these airstrikes and stuff, and Erdogan's threatening a ground offensive, I think it can really complicate Sweden and Finland joining. All right, so the next one here, President Biden says that negotiations on the Russian oil price cap are in play. So he said this on Thursday that he was asked uh, about these, there's reports that you know the EU is negotiating uh, what to set this price cap at. And when he was asked by reporters about this, he said that the negotiations are in play, is how he put it. And this comes as a December 5th deadline uh, to implement the plan is approaching. December 5th is the day that the EU's embargo on Russian oil takes effect, although there are some exemptions for some EU members, including Hungary, um, and I believe maybe Slovakia, I'm not sure, but I know it's the landlocked countries that get most of their oil piped in from Russia, so they don't have the infrastructure to get off Russian oil. It's just not possible for them. Um, so I know that's definitely the case for Hungary. And so this oil embargo, it includes a ban on providing insurance for Russian oil shipments, and still, for the most part, I think uh, oil, Russian oil shipments rely on insurance in Europe. Um, so the idea of the price cap is to curb Russia's profits without taking oil off the market, without taking their oil off the market, because that would send prices skyrocketing. And so the idea is sell it at this set price and you could still have your insurance and other services. But 
the plan, it's just a very flawed plan because Russia is just not going to cooperate. Um, and they're saying that they're not going to cooperate. And if Russia retaliates by cutting oil production, that's really going to send prices high. I mean, this is just seems like such a foolish plan, but they just keep, they're just going right ahead. You know, the insurance thing I think could be an issue, but they'll be able to find alternatives. There might be an initial shock, but they'll be able to figure it out. Um, and industry experts also say, you know, maritime insurance uh, people say that it'll, it would be really hard to enforce anyway, because, uh, you know, it's hard to know what price the oil is really being sold at. Like it would be easy to, to say, to lie and say it was being sold at the cap when it wasn't. So it might just not be effective at all either. But Russia's foreign ministry, you know, they've been saying this, that they're going to cut off these countries that try to implement this. So Maria uh, Zakharova, the foreign ministry spokeswoman for Russia, just said it again on Thursday uh, amid these reports. And the New York Times reported this week that the U.S. has allowed the EU to take the lead in determining what the price cap will be set at. And EU officials were scheduled to discuss the issue on Thursday. So the report said that the EU has been asked to set the price between $65 and $70 per barrel. And over the past three months, Russian crude has traded between $65 and $75 per barrel. Um, so Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, who's been leading this, this, this is her big idea. Uh, she did say recently that India would, would be able to purchase oil from Russia at any price, at you know whatever price they say is fair. And that kind of signals that they're not really going to try to enforce it on, on India, potentially China too, um, and maybe some other Russian customers. So who knows what they're really going to try to do with this. Um, and I mean, they have to know that it's not a good idea, but I don't know. They've done a lot of stupid things uh, recently. All right. Um, so more oil. The next story here. The U.S. might give Chevron a license to pump oil in Venezuela. So there, the U.S. is expected to grant Chevron a limited license to pump oil in Venezuela in a move that would ease the crippling economic sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Venezuela that really were uh, imposed during the Trump administration. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal report uh, that I got this from, the easing of sanctions is contingent on the implementation of a $3 billion humanitarian project that is expected to be announced by Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and his opposition this this weekend. This announcement is expected. They're supposed to resume talks in Mexico, I believe. Um, and the project would be paid for with Venezuelan funds that have been seized by the U.S. So the U.S. would unfreeze Venezuelan money that they have taken to give them to pay for this, which is like, I think, a lot of infrastructure projects and, and things like that. So the license that Chevron would be granted would still be limited. It would allow the oil country to regain partial control of its oil production in Venezuela, but it won't be able to build new facilities until debts are repaid. So again, this is still limited sanctions relief. The Trump administration really started putting harsh sanctions on Venezuela in 2017, and they really ramped things up in 2019 when the U.S. recognized Juan Guaido 
as the president of Venezuela, even though Maduro was the president, and they backed a failed coup attempt against Maduro. They backed Guaido in this failed coup. Um, if you remember that, it was a pretty chaotic uh, situation. And so it, the idea of the sanctions was regime change, and it failed like it, it always does, the sanctions. And they uh, have just hurt you know ordinary people inside Venezuela. And the U.S., um, so following the, the failed coup, I think there was a few attempts, but there was one like big one, uh, but it really fizzled out. I mean, Guaido didn't have much support as it was. And then after all his calls for foreign military intervention um, really uh, lost him what little support he did have. So when they say Maduro is meeting with the opposition, I don't think Guaido is involved at all. And I think the EU no longer recognizes him as Venezuela's president, Guaido I'm talking about. Um, and there's signs. I mean, even just the way that the, these reports have been written up in the Western, in, in the U.S. media, you know, they used to refer to Guaido all the time as like the real president of Venezuela, but not so much anymore. I think rea- they've, you know, reality has set in a bit. Um, so this Wall Street Journal report said that this license for Chevron, it, it would be put the company back under a framework that it was under back in 2019, the sanctions that were in place then. So again, it's not a full easing of the sanctions. Um, and again, these sanctions have really hurt the population of Venezuela, but th- this this isn't about that. This isn't about the fact that it's a failed policy or that these sanctions have hurt people. This is just about oil prices. They're high and they want to bring them down. And Venezuela has the most oil reserves in the world. Um, so uh, th- this is why they're doing this. And it, and it comes as they're trying to implement this Russian oil price cap. So uh, we'll see if this if they follow through on this. Right now, it's still just a maybe. All right. Uh, the next one here. U.S. and Israeli military activity set to significantly expand. So the head of the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, returned to Israel on Thursday after five days of talks with U.S. officials in Washington that were focused on Iran and said joint military operations between the U.S. and Israel will be significantly expanded. So this is the IDF. Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi, he said, quote, in order to improve our capabilities in the face of challenges in the region, joint activity with the U.S. Central Command will be significantly expanded in the near future, end quote. So Israel used to, so U.S. Central Command is the American command that oversees operations in the Middle East. And Israel actually used to be under European command because most of America, the U.S. allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, all the Gulf states, uh, used to not have relations with Israel. So it was tough to kind of cooperate with all of them under the same umbrella. But since Israel normalized with the UAE and Bahrain, that opened things up. They brought Israel in under CENTCOM. And even though Saudi Arabia is hesitant to normalize and to do things like that publicly, they have done joint military drills for the first time first known ones, at least, pretty recently, since Israel was brought under the CENTCOM. So it's a huge thing for the U.S. is to get Israel and these Arab countries cooperating against Iran. And his trip, Kohabi's trip to the U.S., it comes, you know, amid these really high tensions with Iran. I mean, things are really uh, not looking good on that front, and it's it's definitely uh, not been reported on too much. 
because um, the U.S. keeps increasing sanctions on Iran and they're expressing support for protesters inside the country. They might be trying to get them, help them get access to the Internet and stuff, trying to get give them material support. And Kahabi said that, you know, Israel's still going to work against Iran. And earlier this week, he held talks with Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and CIA Director William Burns. And he said in those meetings, he stressed that the U.S. and Israel have to start planning for joint attacks on Iran. And Israel frequently carries out covert covert attacks inside Iran, but it's unclear if the IDF could pull off airstrikes on its own in Iran without support from the U.S. Um, Striking the Iranian nuclear facilities that have been built deep underground which were a response to Israeli sabotage, by the way, <laughs> would require bunker-busting bombs that Israel does not have. Um, and I just had to mention in this article that the U.S. did acknowledge recently in its nuclear posture review that Iran has not decided to build a nuclear weapon. So there's that, but that doesn't stop the U.S. and Israel from hyping up this threat of this phantom nuclear weapons program um, that doesn't exist um so yeah just tensions are just really building in the region between the u.s and iran and israel all right the next one here so this is from the palestine chronicle uh netanyahu to agree to soft annexation of the west bank so this is part of as netanyahu who is set to become israel's prime minister he's still forming a coalition government and he has uh, part of the coalition are all these far-right uh, lawmakers. And he has agreed, apparently, to, according, I saw this in Haaretz, he's agreed to move the civil administration in the West Bank from the Israeli Ministry of Defense to the Ministry of Finance in order to appease far-right member of the Neset, uh, Bezalel Smotrich. So basically... It seems like religious Zionism, which is this guy Smotrich's party, uh, will be given the civil administration of the West Bank. Basically, Israel's control of the West Bank, their military occupation of it, um, and the decisions to build settlements and uh, destroy Palestinian homes. And this guy Smotrich, this is basically giving this authority to the settlers. He lives, uh, he lives in a settlement, um, and I think a lot of these guys do. So this is pretty could be pretty major uh, if this is the case because that means once this new government comes in, they're just going to be approving settlements and uh, demolitions and just really try to expand, um, you know, Israel Israel's presence in the West Bank and and try to push out the Palestinians more. And I know Smotrich and this religious Zionism party, uh, you know, they they don't want a two state solution. They they want to kick either kick the Palestinians out or have them, you know, fight a war against them essentially. Um, So this would be a big one. And this actually, this article from Palestine Chronicle Chronicle quotes uh, Barack uh, Ravid, who is an Israeli reporter. I know he writes for Axios and also some other um, Israeli news outlets. And this is his, you know, what he's, what he's saying is that moving the civil administration in the West Bank from the Israeli Ministry of Defense to the Ministry of Finance will be a soft annexation of the West Bank. And he's saying that it will be a violation of the commitment Netanyahu gave to the U.S. and UAE 
to suspend his annexation plan. So he made that commitment when he signed the normalization deal with the UAE with the UAE. Because before that, he he kept saying he was going to try to annex the West Bank under this plan that the Trump administration came up with. Um, so he's come back in and and during his time uh and under the Trump administration, they were expanding settlements just at a really high rate. So I think that's really gonna continue again. Um, so things aren't looking good for the Palestinians when it comes to settlement expansion. I mean, I think it's really going to ramp up either way, even if this happens or not, it probably will. But if that happens, you know, they give the settlers the control. All right. So the last news story here, the U.S. military is set to return to Subic Bay, Philippines, to counter China. So this is according to a report from Kyoto News, which is a Japanese outlet. They reported that the U.S. will likely return to Subic Bay, Philippines, 30 years after closing what was once the largest U.S. military base in Asia. So it was actually November 24th, 1992, when the U.S. officially closed Subic Bay, which was a huge uh, naval base. I, I mean, I people that I've known that were in the military, I know a lot of older people that were state, you know, stationed in, in Subic Bay. And um, so the U.S., as I went over recently with Kamala Harris going to the Philippines, they're looking to build new military facilities in the Philippines as part of its effort to confront China in the region. And they're in talks with Manila to set up five new locations. The construction will be done under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. That's the EDCA, a military pact between the U.S. and the Philippines that was signed in 2014. So since the base was closed, the area has become a bustling port overseen by the Subic Bay Metropolitan Authority. So the head of this authority told Kyoto that he would be surprised if Subic Bay did not become a EDCA site, referring to that treaty. Um, so he's expecting that there will be construction in Subic Bay to create potentially a new U.S. military base. Um, so Subic Bay, the location, it's on the west coast of the Philippine island of Luzon, which is on the South China Sea. And it could be the front line for any future conflict with China in the region. And the South China Sea, it's become a potential flat flashpoint for a conflict between the U.S. and China. As Beijing, Manila, and several other Southeast Asian countries all have overlapping claims to the water, and the U.S. has rejected China's claims, most of them. And they sell warships in the region and they back the Philippines in their little standoffs against China. And, you know, if the U.S. puts a base, a new base here uh, that could expand its footprint pretty significantly in the region. Uh, and I think, you know, so there has been, you know, U.S. military has done like drills and stuff and, and naval ships have gone into port here Uh you know, in recent years, but if they actually build a new base, that would be um, pretty significant. Because right now, the U.S. Navy's, I think it's the seventh fleet, which is based in Japan. Those are the ships that go through the Taiwan Strait, that go into the South China Sea, and they want to create a new numbered fleet. And if they were to do it, I think they might try to do it in Subic Bay or, or in the Philippines, because they seem like the only country in the region that's really you know, game to let the U.S. do this. And this might be a change. Uh, we'll see, though, I mean, how big these these facilities are. They, they could end up just making kind of smaller 
facility is not like a big naval base. I guess we'll see how it uh, pans out, but this could be pretty, pretty major. But that's it for the news uh, for today. We have a lot of good viewpoints. We have one from Ramsey Brood, who uh, he actually, uh, I believe he runs Palestine Chronicle. I know that that's where he writes, uh, but he's also uh, we a regular columnist for us. But he wrote about uh, the decision to investigate Abu Eklo's murder and why it's unprecedented. The Department of Justice is investigating the Israeli killing of Shireen Abu Ekla, Palestinian-American journalist who was gunned down in the West Bank back in May. Uh, we have one from Caitlin Johnstone about the whole AP debacle firing that reporter and how one of the editors said that she could not imagine that a U.S. intelligence official would be wrong. Um, we've run from Ted Snyder, one of our columnists, uh, about the Biden-Zelensky relationship. He's been doing a really good job lately, Ted, of go- kind of going back and looking at all the interesting details of of this war in ukraine of the political side of it and and this just talks about some of the things biden and Zelensky, uh how they might have had some issues throughout this this war here and then uh one from connor eccles over at responsible statecraft about the pentagon failing its fifth audit in a row uh, that's a lot but uh that's it um that's it for the week actually this is friday show so i will be back after the weekend again i hope everybody's thanksgiving was good uh mine was good i'm very tired and full so i'm gonna go to sleep after this <laughs> but uh i'll uh talk to you after the weekend support the show antiwar.com slash donate share it everywhere tell all your friends about it um and all that good stuff and i appreciate all the feedback and and send me more feedback thanks <laughs>